exciting news. Tickets for the Conference on Religious Trauma, Court 2023, are now available. Also, if you're interested in an ad-free version of the Divorce and Religion podcast, come join me over on Patreon. Links for both are in the show notes. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Divorcing Religion Podcast. I'm your host, Janice Selby. I'm a registered professional counselor and a religious recovery consultant. My guest today is Dr. Josie McSkimming. She's an Australian social worker, psychotherapist, lecturer, and researcher. She's been in full-time private practice since 2000, specializing in relationship therapy and adult mental health. In her book, Leaving Christian Fundamentalism and the Reconstruction of Identity, Dr. McSkimming details the stories of those who have left Christian fundamentalist churches and how they change after they left. I first heard Josie when she was a guest on the MindShift podcast, interviewed by my friend, Dr. Clint Haycock. Welcome. It's nice to have you, Josie. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Oh, yeah, I can hear your accent. I feel warmer already. And I see your beautiful <laughs> Australian wildflowers. And oh, oh yes, so we're, we're about um, 27 degrees Celsius here. <laughs> oh, I know gosh. that's delicious, isn't it? That sounds just wonderful. (laughs) Um, Now, for folks uh, who aren't familiar with you and your background, could you tell us a little bit about um, your religious environment growing up or what things were like uh, for you in a religious sense? What a, you know, there's there's always the short story and the long story, isn't Mm -hmm. there? (laughs) Um, The short story is I was converted rather than growing up in an explicitly um, evangelical or fundamentalist church, but I was converted young at a Christian camp at age 10 and remained in the church until my mid-40s. So that's a long time. I was extraordinarily persistent, let's say, in my adherence to the Christian walk, the Christian faith, thoroughly inculcated in all the Christian truths, Christian teacher, well, only to women, of course, but (laughs) that's, well, we'll get to that. Um, But, you know, I was very much immersed in that whole Christian world. My family were um, on one side Jewish, so, but non-practicing, so I had that, and then on my mother's side, that was my father's side, and on my mother's side they were kind of more high church. I don't know of what that means to your listeners, but that's more kind of progressive um, Anglican or Episcopalian. It's a sort of a more a progressive liberal view of right. scriptures. So that yeah. was kind of my background. So my parents were rather horrified at my very ardent conversion as a child. Mm. So how, who so who had invited you to the to the church camp? Well, that's an interesting thing because um, my elder sister had always gone on these church camps, but my elder sister just fell in love on these church camps, mostly with women, and resisted those sort of um, conversion experiences. She just managed to have these heady love affairs. Oh dear. I got converted because I was always in the family, a rather earnest, conscientious child, needed something for myself. My big sister was the shining light and the star. Um, 
In fact, the book that I've written includes quite a lot about my elder sister. So it was her invitation to go along to these camps and to have these experiences, but she was kind of more thinking of, you know, the relationships and the love, you know, but I found Jesus to her horror. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you you really dug in deep, it sounds like. You were very hardcore and devout and earnest in yep. your uh, acceptance and embracing of all things Jesus and oh, Christian. All things Jesus from the earliest time. And this is why some of this, you know, nonsense around, um, you know, you were never really Christian or you were never really true Christian is such an absurdity because I was the truest and the most devout of Christians. Through school, I was kind of head of the evangelical group at school. I was involved in the campus Bible study ministry. University is where it really um, cemented because I got involved in the very fundamentalist, profoundly evangelical university ministry. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think often university is when you really become immersed. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I married young, as people did, still do, um, you know, so you won't burn in passion. That's right. Um, (laughs) Better to marry than to burn. (laughs) So, you know, um, married young, had children young, you know, ladies' Bible study leader, Christian counsellor. I was on all the Christian counselling lists. So when you needed a Christian counsellor, go-to person. Wow. Wow. I'm I'm blacklisted now. Yeah. (laughs) Right, so. (laughs) Right, so. So it's interesting. Um, you uh, had a conversion experience at yep. an early age, and we know that conversion often takes place during a vulnerable time uh, yes. or time of transition. And certainly at 10 years old, which is also the age I got baptized into the evangelical Pentecostal church, wow, you're, interesting. You're, not, you're not old enough at at. 10 years old to make a lifelong commitment to anything. It's just, it's cruel to push these sorts of decisions onto children and even teenagers. You know, they don't have the ability to evaluate it critically. And yet that's when it happens at church camp and places like that. And then again, in university, another time of transition where we're moving from teenhood to young adulthood. It just, it makes sense. That's when the cults come out in full force. Well, in fact, that was sort of um, taught by the chaplain or the the pastor who was running the university ministry is that this is a vulnerable and this is a transition time for young people, so we're going to really get them now. And so that was a lot of our um, cold evangelism, you know, just on the library lawn, Mm -hmm. all that kind of going up to people, small group immersion, all of that was designed to get people then. But, you know, I was a bit vulnerable at 10 as well. You know, I, ha- I wasn't, um, I was getting into a lot of trouble at school. You know, even at 10, you can kind of find yourself a bit troubled trying to find my way in the world. And when, you know, one of these, you know, wonderful leaders says, Jesus is the answer, well, you grab on. 
And what they do is they follow up just to keep you immersed. It's that kind of patrolling the boundaries that, you know, goes on and on. Yes. And I think to our birth order, if we're the youngest child in the family, we can kind of be at the end. Our parents are very busy taking care of everything and everybody else. We want to to find our way and have a place Mm. to belong. And and in the wings, waiting in the wings, uh, you Mm. know, is an older teenage girl or someone that was in my case. And she saw me make my way down to the altar. And that was it. I just was love bombed and sucked right in. Love bomb is the thing, isn't it? Yep. Yep. So, yeah, so it is interesting, but um, I've kind of always been, had, you know, remarkably persistent and tenacious. So, um, but as you well know, that those who were totally immersed in the bosom of Mother Church are often the most ardent ex-evangelicals, you know, mm-hmm. um, I may have been absolutely devout, but, um, you know, now I'm kind of feel I'm more of an activist in the other way. Yes. To really assist people recover and to rebuild, you know, after these experiences. Oh, gosh. It's you're just a mirror to me in so many ways, (laughs) hearing your story and your desire also just a sense of responsibility now to who help to help others. Uh, yes. who are making their way out of a problematic um, yeah. system, which can be toxic yeah. for a lot Absolutely. of people. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not, I'm not marching down to the front of the church and telling people it's all wrong, but I am waiting outside at the bottom of the church steps to catch people who are thrown out or, or fumble their way out, yeah. you know? Yeah. Good metaphor. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, certainly see people who still want to stay with some kind of spiritual connection. I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to um, push people away from a kind of spiritual journey. You know, as a therapist, you accompany people, you stand beside them, you don't get in front of them and obscure their vision. So I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm very committed to helping them deconstruct the experience that have shaped that very, um, often disabling and limiting and self-harming view of the self. Yes, yes, and and um, letting our our clients know or patients know uh, that we believe in their ability to to live successful and happy and healthy yes. lives. They just yes. need the tools to do so. And yes. so some of them, you know, they still feel they remain very reliant on an outward source, outward source, but sure. but I don't see it that way for them. I see that they have what they need and I want to help them uh, yes. if I can. Quite so. Yeah. So what on earth uh then brought you kind of out of it because you were in hook line and sinker i was in hook line and sinker well you know as i explain in the book that i've written about this is that exits for people are often very slow and they often happen over about 20 years and they often happen through a variety of turning points and catalytic moments and it's often when you're kind of well out that you can track back. And, I mean, I 
I understand them almost as sites of injury. There are very injurious moments that initially you kind of accommodate or paper over or think it's your problem, but eventually there become so many moments of these that you, you, you just can't go on. And so for me, it was, it was like that. And then I kind of started to relinquish leadership. Then I started to attend less regularly. Then I started to look for other more progressive congregations. So it was that kind of journey to, in the end, I didn't want to go to any of them. I've even been to Shul, to synagogue, to see do I want to actually go back to the, not the Orthodox, um, right, the reform. But liberal reform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not persuaded of that. When you've kind of been a part of a high-demand religious community, you're just not quite sure about any more external rules from anybody, no matter how benign. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so yeah i it's it's very much a slow process it's not an argument and you're gone and i think this is and this is how i see people in therapy and also sort of friends and colleagues really is that it's very much these um turning points and you know i in understanding what happened to me you know who do you look to but French philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of tried to understand what had happened to me really uh, kind of along the lines that Michel Foucault writes about power because he writes about power, yes, it can be centralised, yes, it can be authoritarian, it can be, you know, the king from on high or the minister from on high telling everybody what to do, but it also often more insidiously, can be decentralised. It can be dispersed through the community, through the whole social body. And I started to understand that not only was I a recipient of this kind of power and control, I was also active in perpetuating it. And all of us are implicated in this process of keeping people under the power of this system and, of course, uh, Michel Foucault famously talked about the gaze and the panopticon where you don't realise um, when you're being looked at, you know, through this sort of architectural structure, you don't know if you're being looked at, so you always behave yourself. They used it for prisons mm. with this central observation tower where there was You just didn't know if you were being looked at, so you engaged in this kind of surveillance. And I understood that that's what we were all subjected to, this really um, um, destructive form of internal self-surveillance. You were always monitoring your behaviour and monitoring others. So, And and when you start to realise that's going on, you can start to take a position about whether that's okay or whether that's not okay. And over time, I clearly thought this is not okay. Wow. That's so powerful, that whole notion of constantly policing 
ourselves. And that's yeah. exactly what goes on. And that's then exactly also right. policing, policing and judging others. others. Right. And to, and that's, to that's adopt that do. from childhood is so... That's right. Wow. Mm. And so if you don't have your quiet time or your prayer time or if you don't go to Bible study or church, mm-hmm. yes, there is shaming from other people. Sometimes mm-hmm. they call it counselling, <laughs> but it's kind of shaming. Yes. Um, but there is this profound uh, self-surveillance and inner policing, and that's how you control people. It's the best way to control people, mm-hmm. that people kind of absorb and digest all of these so-called truths about themselves and the world, about how women should be, about how men should be, about how you sexual you should or shouldn't be, all of that and how you all relate in this community, and that's all taken as God-breathed, God-inspired, the truth of God, so you can't argue with it. You know, you kind of take it in and you police yourself. And that's why I think it's very hard to leave because you have to reconstruct. You have to kind of reposition yourself. You have to uncouple yourself from this system. Right. And then I wonder too, um, so the whole idea of being submissive in in church, especially for children and uh, women, but also Mm. men are supposed to submit to authority. And this lends itself to predators rising to the top, and then they have a situation where they can weaponize the concept of forgiveness. And so then they're they're telling people that they're not to talk about it. They should keep things a secret when there's abuse that's going on, and they should just continue yes. to forgive. And it yes. makes it very, very hard. Uh, and then sometimes I think there can be a degree of uh, moral injury then when people are, they know they should be speaking up they feel that but they're so terrified to do so because they're trapped in that system i think i think i think it's an important point that predatory people can assume great power within these structures bullies people who um act in abusive ways Mm -hmm. and um myself i was kind of told in a kind of a private meeting with one of these people about how all the problems um, in one of in a relationship I had, um, heterosexual relationship, I had all the problems were to do with me. I didn't have a quiet and gentle spirit. Um, I was too dominating. I was too opinionated. And what I needed to do was to go and meditate on the fruit of the spirit, you know, on a daily basis and learn to keep my mouth shut and you know this is actually bullying this is this is abusive um i know some people have uh, clearly people have a lot worse i mean there's sexual predation um as well as sort of profound psychological control but you know that had a very bad influence on me for a number of years about um self-acceptance and you know, being able to work out who you were. This is in my 20s. So, you know, this this was really an act of bullying. So you had someone else tell you that 
I yeah. told myself that. I <laughs> gaslit myself, and I and I told when you myself. you get gaslit, and then you, this is the self-surveillance. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. And I yeah. thought my marriage uh, is so difficult. It must be because of me. It can't be because of him, because he was given to me to be my spiritual head. It yeah. must be me. Yeah, it must be you. I, I'm, I'm not submissive enough. I even took to wearing a head covering to try and remind myself constantly that oh, my, my role was goodness. to submit, <laughs> to submit and to serve. And I was very, very earnest about it and tried really, really hard. Um, at, you know, surprise, it didn't, it didn't work. The marriage was still hard and, uh, and didn't work in the end anyway. But just the, the blaming that went on because I believed, um, what I read in the Bible and I believed that he was to be my spiritual head and he could do no wrong. Oh, and, and if only you're, I mean, if only this was an uncommon story that you're mm. telling. Mm. I mean, you know, you may well have, like me, I used to see a lot of Christian couples early on in their marriage because, you know, I was a go-to Christian counsellor. <laughs> and the sexual problems to do with men, uh, the Christian men who almost 100% seem to have a pornography problem because of our completely screwed-up view of mm. sexual expression and sexual mm. behaviour. Mm -hmm. So they were expecting something from these women who couldn't have sex at all because of shame and self-loathing and wanting to serve their husbands but couldn't, couldn't have sex. Yes, yes. yes. And this is exactly why. Frozen I... up, you know. Oh, yes, yes, Physi yeah. physiologically. Physically, yes. Yeah, vaginismus. So there yes. was all kinds of problems that would result from these ideas and look at me now we're talking about these notions of men and women that have had so deeply harmful effects on people you know we have an organization in sydney i think it's still going called equal but different oh, yeah. which is all about this complementarian yes. view Mm -hmm. They don't, it's not an egalitarian view, as you know. It's all this complementarian view that, you know, God made us to be different and women in this sort of submissive role. And it's mischievous, it's harmful, um, it leads to sexual abuse, mm. it leads to physical abuse. It's mm -hmm. kind of, there's some interesting research that's been done here about within um about domestic violence and family violence within the church being very much linked to this teaching because the predatory and the abusive behavior goes under the radar and it's all happening in the home oh yeah where you've got to keep your mouth shut mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes and this is um one reason why I recently hosted the Shameless Sexuality Life After Purity Culture online uh -huh. um, conference. And I had many experts speaking at that event. Uh, and there was a lot of crossover, certainly with the religious trauma and the purity yes. culture and how yes. people's yes. bodies and minds are negatively impacted by that indoctrination. Uh, and tickets, people can still purchase recordings um, from that. I'll have links in the show notes but it's such an important topic and i don't think it gets it spoken about enough so then no, you, I, you i don't either yeah you found your way out over a uh, about a 20 year span yep. Did, yep. 
Did your marriage survive? Well, incredibly, it has. And um, I think I'm kind of one of the lucky ones. (laughs) Kind of, you know, married at 21 and all of that. But I think it's because my husband started working in a Christian organisation as I was Mm -hmm. because, you know, service, Mm -hmm. doing the right thing, et cetera. And his was different to mine. Was Mine was a kind of a, a, um, a counselling one. His was kind of more in financial services. Mm-hmm. He started to see the same horrors that I was seeing but played out in a different Christian organisation, the hypocrisy, the bullying. And we didn't really talk about it, but we were both on this exit journey. And, you know, often you don't dare talk about it because of shame, because of guilt, because of fear huge fear and eventually we did start talking about it that we were both exiting and we both started reading about different views about men and women in the church we were told not to read those books but we Mm -hmm. read them anyway Mm -hmm. so we became subversive together and this sort of counter conduct that um you know i'm kind of quite interested in people's counter-contact or their counter-story or their counter-behaviour that's often done this subversive resistance Mm -hmm. that you do, you know, quietly like a double life, right? which is Mm -hmm. I felt we had a double life. Mm -hmm. You've got your Christian going to church life and your Mm -hmm. Bible study life and then there's this one going on. We sort of did it together. And so we survived but, you know, a lot of people don't because one is stays sort of immersed and the other leaves. It's dreadful. Or um, as a lot of the people I see coming for counselling, they should never have married their partner anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They married young. They married because they were told, you know, you can marry anybody as long as they're single, the opposite sex and a Christian. It used to be called the SOC principle in the churches I went to. Can you believe that? The sock prince. <laughs> you could marry anybody as long as they were single, the opposite sex, and a Christian. Because you know, even if you didn't like them much, oh, Jesus is Lord. Wow. So some people just marry mm-hmm. just fundamental mismatches. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they broke up, didn't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I'm fortunate because my well, our marriage didn't survive, but eventually. Uh, my ex-husband, who had been a pastor, and yeah. our our daughters, we all deconverted, uh, and so now we're we're still quite a, a happy unit, quite a caring <laughs> container uh, of friendship we have for each other. Now so. that's 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 I think if you were a pastor, I was so grateful that that neither of us actually went into theological training Mm -hmm. because I think that adds an extra dimension, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, because to deconvert when you're a pastor means you lose your profession, you lose so much. I mean, you lose everything. Oh, yeah. At least we we could go into other fields, you know. That's right. And and when you've spent Mm -hmm. $50,000, $75,000 to attend Bible college and get your degree and um yes so it's uh there's a lot of um difficulty there when folks are coming out of it and and then uh, so you already had been working as a christian counselor and then at some point you transitioned into a secular uh therapist of sorts and you wrote your 
book and your book has a lot to do with identity. I wonder if you could talk with us about that because my entire identity, and I think yours probably Mm. too, was wrapped up in my ideology. And once I started pulling that thread and I was no longer a Christian, I was no longer a homeschooler and I was no longer a wife, all these things, my worldview dissolved. I didn't know who I was. My personality had never had the chance to develop apart from my parents' religion. Yes. And, um, That's exactly right. And that's what I was terribly interested in. Um, And that's why I found it interesting when I did my interviews, my in-depth interviews with a lot of people and also in my clinical work, that um, this notion of the double life was probably even more prominent than I realised. This idea that people over a long period of time were engaging in these acts of resistance and subversion. So eventually, uh, this is for myself, I felt like I was able to draw on that. I was able to almost, um, you know, let that rise to the surface, as I've said before, almost like a sunken ship. It's here. I've got something and I can kind of make something of a piece together in some kind of story the story of my own resistance and what does that say about my ethics. And, of course, this is how I um, do therapy but I also wrote about in the book, that when you actually start to reinvent yourself, it is often about a reinvention of ethics. And for some people this is hugely liberating and interesting. They think, well, what do I think about abortion? What do I think about um same-sex relationships, and they actually can shed all of that that sort of sort of um, theology or truth discourse about this is the truth, and start to think it through for themselves. Other people don't find it quite so freeing; they find it terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, it is finding your ethics. But I also thought the uh, you you read you rebuild your identity certainly by the resistance, but also by self-seeing. You know, we did so much self-surveillance. So I wrote in the book about starting to see for yourself. You're no longer subject to the gaze, but you're doing the looking. So do the looking. Mm -hmm. And as you do the looking, see what you find. And you can often do this in community with other people. So People form these evangelical communities. Um, people find other apostates or semi-apostates elsewhere via your podcasts, by your conferences. You know, when I um, left, you know, my church, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. I think I found xchristians.net on the internet. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. it. Yes. You know, this was kind of before we had any form of social media. Yeah. It was about 2005 when I left. So very isolating. It was very isolating. So I think, you know, I, I, I think that the power of community can be very helpful. But the idea that you, um, yes, I mean, I, 
the idea that you've got to kind of find your authentic self, I sometimes I resist that a little bit because some people say they don't know. So I say, no, maybe it's not to find yourself or maybe it's not to discover who you are, but to refuse who you were before. So it's a process of refusal. No. And in that refusal, things may emerge for you. That feels powerful. I like yeah, that. I, well, I kind of like it. Look, French philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I kind of found Foucault and even the rather um, um, obscure Deleuze and some of those French philosophers who kind of write so cogently about the controlling society I felt that that really applied to our church communities. Mm. Uh, and I did find some of those concepts very, very freeing. I didn't have to know who I was. I could just refuse the old story. And then eventually I found the things that, that matter to me, what I really value, what I really hold dear, you know, what are my... Um, most important considerations and some of them are the same as when I was a Christian and that is um, I do want to be involved in things that are worthwhile and meaningful I do want to help people Mm -hmm. just not quite the same way right (laughs) yes and so when I'm working with clients um, I call that aspect values clarification and yes. so, yeah, yes. we can take a look at Very what was similar. important to us before and what's important yeah. to us now. And that can yeah. be really scary for people. Sometimes they even have to start as simply as going to a store and wandering down the, the aisle in the clothing store and thinking, do I like that? Do I like that? Do I like Absolutely. that color? And just Absolutely. trying to figure out from the basics what they like. Well, and because dislike. we were told in the 80s and the 90s, you know, you're not allowed to wear leggings and you're not allowed to wear this, you're not allowed to wear that. You were wearing a head covering. I mean, you have to kind of find your own <laughs> style again, don't you? <laughs> Today, my style is grunge from the, from the 90s. <laughs> oh, dear. Wow. Oh. Yeah, it's such a, now I find I'm living life in such a more expansive and curious manner. Before, it was yeah. very fear and judgment oriented. Yeah. Now, I can be curious. I can pull up to that buffet table of life, and I can take a bite of everything, and I might go back that's for seconds, exactly or I right. might not want more, and and that's okay. I don't even have to judge it. And I think that's kind of how we do rebuild that you can actually present yourself. Once you've uncoupled yourself, just kind of gently from the the kind of these chains of some of these theological truths, so-called truths, you can actually front up and start to sift and accept and discard. Um, Having said that, things do persist, though. Fear of hell can persist for people. Oh, that's a big one. Fear of judgment. Um, fear of what people thought of me, this persisted for me for ages. Um, You know, I remember writing letters to the um, Metropolitan newspaper in Sydney, kind of really protesting about the church's attitudes towards gay people and same-sex marriage, and I was scared. You know, the old judgment, but 
What I've discovered as well is that I thought maybe people would kind of try and reach out to me and convert me again. But I don't know what your experience is, Janice, but I found that I was just wiped, that nobody reached out really, maybe very sort of, uh, you know, in a very piecemeal way. But mostly it was it was as if I just didn't matter and the water's over the top of your head and... I do know that people say don't go to her for counselling or don't listen to anything she says, um, but I certainly, it's not as though people are reaching out to me with any degree of concern or interest. No. And, I didn't and, have to be scared. You know, I was just kind of, you know, ostracised, irrelevant. Yeah. What I tell myself is that um, a lot of uh, folks who remain entrenched in religion, they fear that apostasy may be contagious. Oh, and definitely. so rather than uh, trying to uh, come after me, and I did have a couple, but sure, not many. I, I thought yeah. for sure someone would notice my absence when I had led Bible studies and all those sorts of things. But nope, it was. Well, did you leave suddenly? Off. Suddenly? Um, yes, but we'd had a year or two of just calamity after calamity hitting our family. And then ah. the final straw was our youngest daughter uh, was afflicted with a life-threatening illness. And I just ah. could not explain that away. And so at that point, I thought, I've bet on the wrong horse. God must be yeah. in one of these other religions because he's sure not here. And oh, then, I, and then I started uh, exploring other groups and I've spent a number of years in the New Age community. Until then, I realized there's dogma and there's issues there and, and I just don't need any of it to live a happy life. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. There. There, um, as you say, when these things happen, you certainly do say, where is God? And all of the usual ways that we talk ourselves through things, all of those usual circular arguments and um, apologetics and things that I never even believed I taught others about why is there evil and why do bad things happen? But when yeah. the bad thing really happens to you, I mean, when my sister died, this wonderful sister I've spoken mm -hmm. about, when she died, that was it for me. That's when I stopped everything yeah. because uh, she was gay and I wasn't going to go down that road that she's going to hell. I said, right, that's it. This is errant nonsense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh yeah, it's like um, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like you drain the bathwater and find there was no baby in there to begin <laughs> with. The, the, whole, the whole thing is just, uh, yeah, it's, it's not going to work for you. I think I might use that. <laughs> sure, that, go that, for it. When you drain the water and there's no baby after all. And all that worrying about the baby. That's right. Yeah. There. So did you... Um, you you obviously then lost church community relationships yes. and friendships, yes. but but not so much with your family because they weren't as deeply invested in religion as you were. No, I didn't. I didn't lose my family. Not my family of origin. Um, my children, my adult children, still tease me about 
the times that they were forced to go to church. I'm a grandma now. They tell their own children about grandma used to make us go to Sunday school. <laughs> my, so, my, my kids tease me and they say, remember when you wouldn't let us use the word adorable because you said we could only adore Jesus? <laughs> sorry. I know. Sorry. I, I can only say sorry too. I know. And I'm embarrassed and somewhat ashamed, but that was a long time ago and I was living in a different space and time. But, no, my own parents were somewhat relieved, although I was kind of embarrassed to even tell my family, my sisters, um, my parents, because I'd been so involved for so long. When I finally wrote my book and I think they read it, I think they got a shock, like that, my goodness, all this has been going on and we didn't even really know. I certainly wasn't too open because I was embarrassed about what had happened. And, you know, I felt like I'd wasted an awful lot of years. Um, and, you know, I've kind of tried to come to terms with that, that, that idea that, no, time isn't wasted. Some really important, interesting things did occur, church notwithstanding because um, it's just not helpful or productive to have all that idea of the wasted years in the church. But initially I did experience quite a lot of that and I felt embarrassed, mm, you know, that so a clever person could waste time, etc. Oh, yeah. and, and my research participants and clients are like that too. They're embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do any of them tell you they're struggling with anger or was anger anything that you felt for having been kind of duped in the first place and then given so much of your resources? I'm still angry. Yeah. I'm furious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I, but there's a difference between kind of, you know, that reactive rage and maybe this constructive anger, mm-hmm. which is all about refusal, which is all about, you know, I call it like an anti-pastoral revolt. Mm. I'm still angry. I'm I'm still angry at that white middle-class conservative church in the United States and what it's doing to American politics, mm-hmm. those right-wing Christians. I'm furious. And I'm furious about how it um, nearly derailed our own political system in Australia. But thankfully, Australians really don't tolerate too much bullshit, and we voted out our Pentecostal Prime Minister. Oh, very good. Very oh, good. good. In May, yeah. straight out on his ass. So we Excellent. were all very <laughs> pleased. <laughs> oh, and we have a progressive government, and the whole country breathed a collective sigh of relief. But mm-hmm. I'm still angry, and I still feel the need to be an activist on this front. Yes. But it's not so much about the wasted years. It's more now I need to speak because there are others who still have so much fear and so much shame and so much, um, let's face it, damage done mm-hmm. that they can't speak. Mm-hmm. They're still in abusive marriages or they're still exiting. So I feel it's a kind of, you know, a moral responsibility to to keep being you know, maintain the rage 
Yes, and to to let um, people know that religion is not benign. Indeed, it can be very harmful to a great many exactly. people. And this is where we talk about religious trauma and religious trauma syndrome and want to bring that up into the public um, discourse so that people become familiar with it. Because typically when I mention religious trauma, People who've never been religious, they say to me, oh, do you mean priests harming children? And I say, well, that's certainly one form. But no, I'm talking about something far more pervasive than that. And invisible and insidious and, you know, often regarded as much more benign Mm -hmm. than oh. Yes, and certainly I hear from uh, people who are still believers, and they wonder, well, where do I get my morals from now, since I'm no longer a yeah. believer, as if their yeah. church and their Bible has the, the market cornered on morality. And I feel like... If but Janice, we, we were taught that. We, yes. I remember being taught that, and at university in my churches, that if there is no God, there is no morality. So you cannot make moral choices. You cannot find a kind of a moral compass or an ethical frame of living without God, without absolute truth. And this was argued very frequently and very persuasively. And so to get to the point to say there is ethics, there are ethics, and, and you there are there are ways of living without so-called absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Um you know, mm-hmm. does take a little while because you've got to discard or at least uncouple yourself from that teaching, which yes. you have kind of internalized and taught yourself and believed, mm-hmm. even though it was, um, you know, there, there was a cognitive dissonance, you know, the old cognitive right. dissonance that right. you tolerate. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a believing a whole lot of different things that don't make sense all at the same time that all contradict each other. Yes, yes, um, and even to get to a point of admitting that we when we can finally admit, I can't yes. hold all these conflicting views. Yes. And really, then when we divorce religion uh, and specifically Christianity, I'm talking about it there's like a a maturing that happens, a maturation, because in the church, we're told to be as children. And there's a vested interest in keeping us like children, not doubting. Doubting is a sin. So, no questioning. And, uh, you know, curiosity in childhood is immediately stamped out for obedience. You must obey the first time, every time, with no questions. And that makes you a good uh, church attender. Um, But when we leave then uh, and we are questioning and we go through a process of painfully having to grow Mm. up in Mm. the reality of life Mm. outside the church Mm. and this is when we're finally exposed to the concept of nuance because we must leave behind these rigid black and white authoritarian views if we're going to survive and thrive in this world there have to be shades of gray well it's interesting because one of the one of the kind of the turning points for me is that I realised that my clients who were talking about Shades of Grey, their, their kind of spiritual questionings were paralleling or echoing my own. They were giving voice to what was going on inside me. Now, 
this is with your client. So I wasn't sharing that. So I wrote an article about this, about being grey in the therapy room. And I started to realise that grey, or at least maybe rainbow, was preferable to the black and whiteness that I'd experienced. But as you say, there's, um, you know, such a an infancy and you sometimes people are doing this in their 30s, 40s and 50s and you don't feel equipped. That's right. You know, you still feel kind of young and mm-hmm. immature and mm-hmm. trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Oh, boy, I was in my, I didn't start doubting till I was about 40 and then yeah. in a very short span of time, uh, you know, the marriage was over and I was having a second adolescence when I'd never really had the first one. And and I decided yes, nothing would yes. be off limits to me. Yes. I was going to give myself permission to try all sorts of things. And it was very messy. I tell people it was like holding that beach ball underwater for too long. And then it finally <laughs> springs up and it's so messy. And I'm sure my children got whiplash watching me just go from yeah. being wound so tightly to yeah. then having no yeah. rules and regulations yeah. at all and now as time has gone on it's been about 12 years since then i've found my feet and i found a more middle road rather than yeah. so uh extreme Isn't but it's been quite a journey you know and it does remind me when you say it's messy that particularly for people who are lgbtq in mm-hmm. in churches who mm-hmm. have smothered that for years, mm-hmm. been told that the only option is to live a celibate life. Right. And then that messiness can go into a huge amount of sexual expression. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. there's often such profound guilt because they're still got one foot in and one foot out of the church. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, our LGBT friends are so important to care for because they are at such a high risk of self-harm and suicide mm-hmm. while they're exiting mm-hmm. because of that self that they feel that they're under God's condemnation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we know as exiters and apostates about guilt and about fear, but they kind of ha- have it 500% more. Well, and and they're, they're the people who often seek counselling with me. Yes, yes. Um, and... One of the reasons uh, my marriage ended was when I was finally divorcing Mm -hmm. my own religion Mm -hmm. and I was able to recognize my own attraction to women. Uh, And I knew that from the time I was about 12, but I had really (laughs) just pushed it down because it wasn't acceptable. But, you know, when these things start to surface and I started to recognize "Mm, if this is the only life I have, there are a lot more things that I want to try in this world. (laughs) And I, and I can't be, I'm not going to contain or keep myself from doing um, things that are going to be harmful to other people that's yeah. right that's right i wanted it was to necessary. find out yes <laughs> yeah. yes and so yeah it's just yeah. incredible how that all happened and you're right they are lgbtq community um just very vulnerable and particularly yeah. Yeah. i live next to the united states and seeing the rise of uh hatred and fear aimed at um, those communities exactly and that's what I feel that I maintain the rage about. Mm-hmm. Not that not that kind of anger towards minorities that 
sort of terrifies me and sickens me that mm -hmm. we see in the United States. Mm -hmm. But the kind of the anger that says, you know, treating people like this, this, um, this hate speech, this loathing, you know, we have to keep speaking out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, some of the talk from the United States about um, that recent shooting at the gay nightclub mm -hmm. have just appalled me, floored me, um, about how these Christians speak about people who are gay. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's just staggering. And when I talk about the double life, I mean, like you at 12 who knew you were attracted to women or girls, and I knew from a very early time that there was really a great diversity of sexuality. I knew it at university, mm -hmm. but still I couldn't say it. I used to go to um, seminars that were even talking about conversion therapy. Sorry, mm -hmm. true story. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just appalling what one did. Yes. But yes. I did do it, and mm -hmm. I thought that was the way forward, conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just sickens my heart. But I knew when I was even sitting there listening, thinking this is actually not right. Oh, wow. So that terrible, you know, thing that you have, that we have going on, that's what I meant yes. about the double life. Yes. But thankfully, you know, I was able to kind of shift all that debris. Right. But, you know, but still... You know, I, I feel as though that mental furniture still sits in my head a lot, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that the old judgment stuff, the old fear of hell, fear of God, you know, fear of punishment, mm -hmm. it kind of ebbs and flows a bit and I'm many years out. Right. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say yeah. that because I yeah. think people have a fantasy that it's just like flipping a, a switch, but it's not. It's oh, like grief. No. You have... Uh, Sh grief showers you know they'll just yeah. they'll kind of erupt and then you know and then they pass on and then you've got some calmer calmer waters again but that does that does happen yeah. i feel that with great showers too. yeah you've, you've got a great um you've got some great <laughs> metaphors <laughs> yeah yeah and i find that the um anger is a legitimate part of the grieving process it's yes. okay to be angry we don't yes. want to get stuck in in it and have self-immolating kind of anger but anger that yeah. prompts us to change is yes. healthy anger yes. and regrets are also healthy because they indicate growth they show yes. where we've Good grown point. and anger often talks about boundary violations mm -hmm. which is very important because mm -hmm. when we're in the church there's a lot of boundary violations but we kind of become inured to them we ignore them right. um personal and actual physical boundary violations mm -hmm. um anger can alert us to our own principles so when there's anger there's that kind of that shadow side around what is this pointing to what has been violated here what has been trampled on because it can actually indicate your own ethical frame so I kind of like the anger. Sometimes when it's red hot, I think, oh, now this is a really important indication to me that something very important has been crossed. Yes, I um, love it. Has been That's crossed. right. That's yeah. right. It's a great yeah. point of uh, introspection. Yes. 
as you say, I don't want it to be self-immolating right. and I don't want it to be reactive so mm-hmm. that I shout at people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do want to, um, you know, be alerted to my again, which is some, which is often, not just sometimes, often reassuring about your own ethical substance. Yes. Well, well, um, tell me what's, uh, what's do you have on your agenda? Are you working on another book? Are you just fully immersed in your private practice? Are you still doing research? What's happening for you? I am actually, um, writing another book and, but you know, writing a book, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And the one that I wrote was an academic book and it's it's very detailed and it's kind of a little bit of a manifesto about mm-hmm. how I understand church's work. Right. So I'm actually writing a memoir, which I have finished, which is about my own immersion in the church and then my exit as it relates to my sister. Yes. Who was, um, you know, quite a well-known person in Australia. Okay. So... It's got that, but I'm I'm I've written it. I am talking with my agent about it. I'm editing it. You know, it's I'm exciting. There. It's very <laughs> exciting, but um, you know, getting to this point and then actually getting things published and people actually seeing them can take twelve months and other two years. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to say that, hey, it's in the shops. But I'm definitely doing it. I um I started writing actually a biography of my sister. And then I realized and got a lot of feedback saying it'd be much more interesting if it was about the two of you. Oh yes. So yes. that's how I did it. So for people who are interested in sisters, deconversion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how you know how it affects family relationships. Yeah, yes, it's a whole yes. story. And so was she an artist? She was a poet, a librettist, a, a novelist. Wow! Yeah, so she was she was a writer. Oh, yeah, wow. and so are you. So you know, it, and and a big sister by six years. Yeah. So. You know, a little bit on that pedestal as big oh, sisters wow. are. So, yes. what she did, I wanted to do. Yes. Oh, gosh. I look forward to that being published and being able I to. I hope do it. so. I do. <laughs> and um, I, I suspect my literary agent is going to say, no, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. So, there's, <laughs> there's a, you know, it's quite painful, this process. Mm-hmm. And writing about myself. Um, it was extremely emotional. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping it can kind of add to the body of literature. Yes. About this oh, because, yeah. you know, there was nothing for yes. me and mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. not much for you either. Right. Yeah. So we've kind of had to do it ourselves, write our own books, mm-hmm. form mm-hmm. our own groups. That's right. We're forging yeah. the way the way ahead. Yeah. It, yeah. Dr. Josie McSkimming, this has been such a delight visiting with oh, you. I feel like I've you. known you forever. Thank you so much for coming. So easy on. to talk to you. And I uh, I've loved it. Thank you. Wonderful. And everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Divorcing Religion podcast. You can go to my website divorcing-religion.com to learn more about me and the services that i offer we'll see you again soon everyone thanks doctor